Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, a special effects artist, international special effects artist and podcaster. And I'm joined as ever by my lovely co-host. Sam Ashurst and I, much like the protagonist of the film that we're going to talk about today, uh, have a split personality. On some days I'm a director, on others I'm a journalist, uh, on others I'm a podcaster and on others I'm just Margot. Uh, <laughs> welcome, welcome to Raising Six foot and barefoot. <laughs> Cain. Welcome to Raising Cain. Now, a couple of uh, upfront explanations. Ooh. Firstly, we are uh, Sam and Dan. Uh, I just refer to myself in the third person, which is how you're able to tell the time delirious with tiredness and oh, heat. Um, yeah, we're recording this a little advance, and a little. Yeah, uh, presumably a little. the world will have ended before this goes up if the temperature keeps going the way it is. I can't imagine us being able to survive much longer in England with this weather. I mean, ideally, but um, <laughs> sweet release, <laughs> sailors into the fucking sun. But yeah, Dan is uh, is a very busy and uh, successful and popular uh, special effects artist, and once again he is having to leave the country to go and work on a film. Uh, which means we are recording this so far in advance. It's probably going to be broadcast in 2023. But, uh, well, actually, it's it, you're listening to it now, so you know it's September 17th. September 17th. But yeah, we're doing this in the past. We're doing this before um, the Arrow Video Fright Fest live podcast, so we won't be able to tell you anything about how we felt about that, but we're sure we were happy about how that went. Or the, it's appropriate that we're just not talking about it. Just never never, <laughs> never speak of it again. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you were there, you know what happened. You know what happened. And actually, if you weren't there, you probably know what happened because we are going to... We will have... God, oh, yeah, we're doing that tricky forwards past thing. Oh, I love it when this band... We will it. have released it as a... Uh, as a, as a sort of regular episode for those people who weren't able to come along. Yeah, and so to all of you, I'm sorry. But also thanks for coming. <laughs> and we're sorry for you too. Yeah. Because of what will inevitably happen. So Dan, raise, Raising Cane. Yeah. What's, what's it about them? Right, so this alien who is meant to like just reek on Earth has been separated from the rest of the group that he's come down with. There's like a tall lady and a squinty kid... And it goes really badly for him once he's separated from the group. Do you know what? For a moment there, <laughs> for a moment there, I thought that you were talking about uh, Buckaroo Banzai. And all, okay, yeah, well, you know, yeah. Which, he, which he's also <laughs> in, Should we do he? that again? No, no, <laughs> okay, let's, let's just <laughs> put our faces down and keep going. So, Raising Cain. Yeah, so it's interesting. I think you, when you rewatched it, because we... We watched this together not that long ago, but then we've both rewatched it since then. Which version did you rewatch? I rewatched the theatrical, yeah, theatrical cut because like, yeah. we watched the uh, the fan edit together, didn't we? Yes, so. we did indeed. Um, Which did you I rewatch? Re-watched the th- I rewatched the fan edit because I prefer it. Oh, Dan. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, yeah, I pre- uh, yeah, I prefer it. Oh, mate. Right. right well, this, this is, is going to be... Time, plenty of time for that. This is going to be the whole thing. Yeah. No, we're not. We'll, 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 we'll talk about the film in general because I think it's... I mean, obviously, De Palma is way out and ahead of everyone else as far as directors we've talked about. So, that you know, we've already talked a lot about him and how he directs and that kind of stuff and his influences. But this this film, I think this might be the first De Palma film I saw as a kid i i guess it was a relatively recent release when i saw it and so obviously i would have seen the theatrical version and i didn't go back to it for a while i really really enjoyed it 
and it's that that the face, the waking face in the hospital, sort of burnt into my memory. That was, and a couple of shots of John Lithgow as well, obviously. But yeah, so in it, Lithgow plays a number of different characters in it. Uh, how spoiler are we going? I don't know. Um, hang on, let me consult with the other people in my head. <laughs> They're telling me that we shouldn't be too shouldn't spoilery. Shouldn't be too spoilery. Yeah, because it's a relatively underseen one, I think. It's not like Carrie, is it? No, I mean, obviously, it's it's not... Um, that's got to be one of his one of his most seen. We I mean, can aside al- from his blockbusters. Let's allude to stuff, we'll but to not stuff. going to detail. Yeah, so anyway, uh, the point is that they've... Um, he's... Uh, it's the third feature that um, Lithgow worked with uh, with De Palma on, and De Palma has seen what we all knew, we all knew deep down, which was that Lithgow was an incredible actor, even if he's not normally a leading man in Hollywood, or not that often a leading man in Hollywood, and decided to make up for lost time by giving him several roles. So Lithgow is playing different members of the same family. The main character is a child psychologist whose wife is having an affair. Uh, and is sort of discovering slash coming to terms with that reality. Um, But bearing over him is the shadow of his father, who was also a child psychologist, but who was disgraced for reasons I won't explain in the past. Uh, And that um, had some some of his father's dodgy earlier practices uh, seem to be playing slightly more of a part in John Lithgow's character motivations than maybe his wife realises. It's a really fun, super twisty um, thriller it's um it's a return to the hitchcock form for de palma he hadn't done anything hitchcocky for a couple of films and he'd just had a bit of a i've got a bit a of disappointment a, got a bit of a theory about this oh yeah you think it's bonfire of the vanity is flopping he went fuck this i'm going back to what i know well <laughs> no no i mean that's not a theory that's just a fact this is definitely what yeah, happened yeah yeah i mean he um it wasn't just bonfire of the vanities i think uh, which, you know, even he admits was miscast and a, a bit of a mistake. Um, but Casualties of War had also been a box office kind of failure. And I think he's quite passionate about that. And and it was a tough shoot in general. So it, those two films kind of undid the success of The Untouchables. Um, and so I, I do think, like, say, Raising Kane was like a, a bit of a comfort zone film, um, working with one of his favourite actors. Yeah, yeah. Um, exploring a topic, split personalities that he covered several times before in films like Sisters and Dressed to Kill. Yeah. And it was his first thriller since Body Double in 1984. So, yeah, um, so yeah uh, but, but the theory is, basically, yes, there's definitely Hitchcock stuff in, in here. Uh, there's a moment involving a car, um, yeah. which is almost like a shop shot remake. But... Um, He's actually cannibalizing himself here. I, I think he's hit a point of um, where he's starting to. It, it basically feels like a, a greatest hits. Like there's so many echoes of his other films. Um, it's almost like the film has a split personality itself. Like I, I don't want to go into spoilers, but you know, there, there's dressed to kill stuff in here, and it basically feels like the Avengers of his oeuvre, <laughs> um, <laughs> where he's kind of bringing the Palmer to, assemble. Where exactly where he's bringing together references to a load of his own films. There is a moment I won't go into spoilers, but it feels like dressed to kill is rubbing shoulders with the Untouchables, um, while some dudes from Body Double watch what's going on. Like it, <laughs> it's yeah, and and I think you know. In in a previous uh, De Palma podcast, I think it might be Blowout, um, you 
brought up Tarantino and how much he loves De Palma. Yeah. And watching this, it really did make me think that De Palma is the director that Tarantino most idolises. He's his Hitchcock. Um, if you look at his career, it's almost like, you know, it wasn't quite as bad as all this, but uh, Jackie Brown is almost his bonfire of the vanities. And then he retreated back to, you know, the genre, you know, kind of fanboy stuff. Um, and then when you get to Hateful Eight, that's also a little bit like Raising Cain in that he's starting to cannibalise himself. It's, you know, Tarantino said that it was uh, an echo of Reservoir Dogs. Um, so that's really interesting. And, and obviously Tarantino's got Star Trek coming up, which a lot of people, or certainly, you know, it's on his list of things to do, whether it'll ever yeah. happen or not, I don't know. But a lot of people were really surprised by that. It's like, why the hell is Tarantino doing... But to me, that's just his De Palma um, kind of fan worship. De Palma did Mission Impossible, which is a TV show that he grew up on and loved. Tarantino's doing the same with uh, Star Trek. So, yeah, it, think, it really made me think of Tarantino. Do you this, think Tarantino would take it if uh, Abrams was still at the helm and it had to be just one in a series? Or do you think he'd only accept it if it was a... Uh, if it was a full ground-up reboot and he got to cast it? Well, it's, it. Um, it, it is actually... So it's an idea that he's had for years and years. And So um, it does exist only... It you, has to be the script that it, already it, exists. It, yeah, it's basically um, a sort of... I think it's like a alternate universe thing, you know, like basically Paramount are saying, look, if Tarantino wants to make a Star Trek film... We'll let Tarantino we'll, we'll let him. So, yeah, no, it's uh, it really made me think of him this watch. What have you got to say next, Dan? <laughs> I was I was thinking about the fact that this might be one of those ones where we just end up talking about other movies. Well, no, I mean that's quite a bit. Well, there were other just other things I was thinking about that weren't related to. Uh, I, I I definitely want to talk about the difference between the fan edit and the theatrical cut because you are a fan of one and I'm a fan of the well, other. Well, I'm a fan of both, right? Certainly, and and to be completely honest, I haven't revisited the original since we first watched the fan cut. I always liked the original. Probably only seen it two times, maybe three times since I was a kid when I first saw it the first time. But the I really liked the sort of slightly frantic, jumpy format of the of the director approved fan edit. Yeah, you see, that's really interesting because um, so I'm coming at it from a different angle because. I used to be obsessed with this film, like properly obsessed. Um, so I, it was one that I rented out multiple times and would watch as many times as I could before I had to take it back. So watching the, the fan edit with you, I think might have mentioned this at the time, but it sort of was almost a nauseous experience for me because it was like, oh it shit, this so just, it just felt so wrong. And, you know, I, I sort of uh, re-watching um, the, the theatrical cut just i mean it is perfect literally perfect um and this isn't nostalgia speaking it's like so it, it, i don't know if you remember how the theatrical cut opens but um it's and this isn't we we can go into yeah, this because yeah, it's right at the start yeah, yeah. it's the kidnapping so, yes yeah yeah, yeah. The car. So that scene basically effortlessly sets up the plot. It introduces us to sort of the most fun split personality straight away in Kane. Oh, and, that's a spoiler. And well, <laughs> again, we're, we're we're talking about it. it you know, we're talking about the opening. So but, but, I think so, that's fine. Okay, but the, but you've kind of put your finger on one of the things that I I thought was such a nice thing about going back to the version that De Palma had first done and then thought wouldn't work 
and had abandoned to do the theatrical edit, which is that I think a bunch of the twists aren't twists anymore in the theatrical version. So if you're watching the theatrical version, it's very obvious from the get-go that that's a split personality. Yeah, but that's so held, it's not a spoiler. But that's held back in the theatrical, in the original, fuck, in the... The one he did first. The, yeah. the one well, no, no, it, no, no. It's not. It's uh, that's a, a misconception. So this is kind of a, a kind it's of a weird halfway house between a, the two. A, a legend has come out of this that there was always, you know, De Palma had a script that he was happy with, and the studio stepped in and recut it, and now finally it's been put back together. That's not he the case. He voluntarily recut it because yeah. it wasn't working. Well, no, not not even that. This it, it wasn't recut. So basically, he struggled throughout the entire process he didn't know how to end it until you know it deep into filming and and yes the the fan edit kind of resembles one of his his traditional films more it's got more of a kind of that sense of things escalating and the and the build and all the rest of it but you know this is a man who um when he was sat in the edit he was um he had a book on different ways to commit suicide mm, um, yeah. and he would read them aloud um, to, to his the, editor, to editor while they were working on it. So, um, Although it's worth noting that that was a book that had curiously got into the bestseller list. It wasn't like it hunted yeah, yeah, out yeah. a rarity. Yeah, of course. It was a lot of people had that book at the time. But, you know, he basically, you know, uh, when the, the editor was sort of looking at it initially and was like, you know, completely baffled by various things, De Palma said, I don't know if this is in the extras, but De Palma said, if my own editor doesn't understand it, I'm in real trouble. There's a really good interview with the so editor. That, that, let me just finish brought, sorry, that point. Yeah. So, so that does strike me as De Palma wasn't fully happy with it himself, if he couldn't explain it to the editor. Absolutely. He, well, it wasn't... It, so the editor's first response was based on the script. He was an editor who had been who had made a name for himself fixing films that weren't working. Yeah. Uh, and there's a great interview with him on the disc where he talks about the fact that that put him in a place he wasn't enjoying in his career. Yeah, because it meant that he was called in to make terrible films into bad films. I was about to say that. Which yeah. is yeah, which is quite a depressing thing to do. <laughs> and he read the script and he thought, "What the fuck is this?" And he went in, and De Palma, who'd obviously been cutting it, did he have a different director, editor before, or was he just cutting it himself before that? Uh, I think that three editors worked on this. But yeah, he'd been sort of tearing his hair out. They, I, I've heard in places that there'd been a test screening or some, some they'd done some test work yeah. and it hadn't played well. Yeah. Um, so he was having real trouble with it. Part of me thinks that I, and this is a slightly um, pompous thing to say, but I tend to find that I like things that don't test particularly well. <laughs> Generally, yeah. Um, and... And therefore, when you cut a film because test audiences aren't necessarily... Okay, sidebar. Test screenings are, are a problematic thing because unless you can get the same audience back and make them watch it again and again, you're just getting See, another I, I, set of random... I, I don't necessarily agree with and that. You're, I, I, you're showing at most to, like, what, like 100 people at a time? That's a really small sample size for something you're trying to turn into a blockbuster. Now, I... I disagree. I do think the process works on certain films. I think there's some films you shouldn't have test audiences for. For something like this, where he's been a little bit... He, he's made mistakes on his past two films. He's trying to his make... His confidence has gone, yeah. Yeah, his confidence has gone. He's trying to make a, a crowd-pleasing thriller. 
And, and you know, like the, the editor, I don't know if he talks about this on the disc, but he also worked on planes, trains and automobiles. Yes. Does he go into this? Uh, no, no, he doesn't. He, it gets mentioned, but he doesn't. But um, so that the first cut of that was three and a half hours long. And they managed and, you know, they watched it. And John Hughes turned to him and said, oh, I think this is too long. And it's <laughs> just like, yeah, no shit. We, we had to eat sandwiches halfway through. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so they got it down to two and a half hours and then... They started the test audience process, and uh, I, I have a feeling this is one of those films that you hate. Is this right? Oh yeah, it's, it's terrible. I knew it. <laughs> Whereas I really like Planes, Trains, and so um, yeah, and, and he he talks about the process of the test audience and how they really learned a lot from them and took out all this Were stuff they and completely the same trans- people each time. No, no, diff- different each time, but it transformed the film into one of the most popular comedies of all time, no yeah. matter how you feel about but, it. But uh, this, and this is, a, this is a, something that's come up in our private conversations a number of times, but the, I, the, I like a lot of like massive tempo films, super, you know, super popular movies. I don't have an innate problem with them, but I think that when you try and steer something into being popular with more people than necessarily warm to it initially, you are by default forcing it into a lowest common denominator situation because you have to take out the thing that offends each of the uh, different I, 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 circles. I, I, but, but, you know, realistically, you know, a lot of the films that we absolutely love would completely crush and burn in a test audience situation. Of but, course. But these are films where De Palma needed this to be a hit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I, I do think that... Sometimes you do have to go for the lowest common denominator. I'm not judging him for his decision to to play it safe and to go with a more linear thing that suited people, like suited a. a, It's not more linear though. The 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 cut isn't more linear, and in fact, I I think that you know your what you gain from the twists, I lose in terms of tension. So for me, that opening scene completely colours the rest of the film because every scene with him in it is has this frisson of tension because, because you don't it know. Because it starts with him as a Because it starts and it, it, yeah, it establishes that, you know, he is fucked up. Like, that scene is amazing. And, and you know, again, not too much spoiler because it's all in the opening. It, we don't have long to wait before the hotel scene, you know, w- with another character in the room, let's say. And then we go into... That's a great scene. It's an, um, one of my favourites. Such a good scene. It's so good. Um, the editing, the performance, you know, it's just perfect. Um, and then we go into what's the opening scene in the fan edit, which now has all of this tension, and you're like, oh, fuck, don't let him go outside with the kid. Whereas in the, you know, the fan edit, I honestly think this film was improved both by, you know, what they did to it in the edit suite and the the test audience stuff. I think the thing is... Like, it just it sings I, and it just goes so quick. While I prefer one over the other, and I will completely hold my hands up and say that I'm after this conversation, I'm going to go and watch it again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go and watch the original version again. Um, you, you won't believe how well it works, honestly. Like, I'm, it, it, I don't know. It's... it's I, I, I'm glad we've got both, certainly. Me too. Like I'm, I'm really glad both. Or at exist. least the people that bought the limited edition when it first came out. Yeah, I mean, fingers crossed that this is going to be one of those ones where Arrow does a, a less limited edition, but with like you know pared down or like slight. Yeah, I hope it's available because it is sold out everywhere now. Yeah, I wonder if it was a licensing thing. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Like I can't. Yeah, 
It'll be like Arrow releasing Endless without resolution. resolution. I don't know. But yeah, it's um it is a fantastic film. Like I said, I think it's the first Palmer I'd seen. Was it your first Palmer? It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which means it's always going to be slightly special. De Palma was one of those directors where I think I was a little little late coming to the coming to like hunt down his stuff. And when I decided to do that, I was surprised by how many films of his I'd already seen. Mm-hmm. And Mission Impossible aside, I think I'm not as keen on his big blockbuster stuff. Like his his more mainstream stuff. I love the Untouchables. I, I never the Untouchables never clicked for me. Oh man, I love it so much. Yeah, I mean, again, maybe it's one I was too young for. Maybe I should go back and rewatch it. But it just—it's so fucking good. And how do you feel about Carlito's Way? Uh, Carlito's Way is pretty good. Um, oh my god, I wouldn't this put it is anywhere, sacrilege. I wouldn't put it anywhere near his his like more thrillery stuff. But then I'd say the same about Scarface as well. Like I like I like Scarface, but I'll give you Scarface. All right. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not as big on Scarface as everyone else. Now, obviously, that is <laughs> the masterpiece. But just to go back I, to, I, I think the order I saw. By the way, I think I saw Raising Kane, Mission Impossible. Did you say Ghosts of Mars? Uh, it's Mission to M- Mars. Mission to Mars. Thank yes. you. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Slip. I'm tired. Let me. Shall I just say Mission to Mars? So cut it in. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just leave me. Leave me on that. Um, I think the order I saw. Uh, the the first three I saw were I oh know actually I must have seen Carrie in there somewhere maybe I just didn't realize it was his Raising Kane Mission Impossible Carrie Snake Eyes Wow so so like you can see the the the, the chasm yeah in how I'd like how I'd think of the two sides of the diploma coin and there's still there's still some that you haven't seen there are yeah um, and we I'm hoping we'll do one of them see my my ambition is for us to do one diploma every 10 episodes I think that's fair isn't it yeah. that's reasonable we're already getting complaints <laughs> well guess what but then actually I think we've also had positive response so it kind of evens out yeah okay yeah, good you, you just caught me before I swore at some people then <laughs> so yeah like you say I'm glad the fan edit exists I do feel like the theatrical enhances the split personality of the film itself. There's two plot lines, basically, isn't there, in this film. There's the, uh, you know, Carter and, you know, all of his mental problems. And then there's Jenny's weird romance, which feels like a a separate film that kind of intersects. And I feel that works better in the theatrical. Even, you know, the mad dream sequences make more sense to me in the theatrical cut. Yeah, it, oh, it's, I love that shit. <laughs> I mean, it, the film's called Raising Kane. You do get the sense that maybe De Palma was a bit pissed off when he, he wrote it and he made it. I, I, I don't know whether I think that this film sort of demonstrates a lack of confidence or, or too much. How, how do you feel? Um, I think, like we've already said, his, he was a little less sure of himself, perhaps. I mean, the thing is, he exploded like... so hard at the beginning of his career. Yeah. He'd, had, he'd gone from doing a, a, you know, a couple of relatively obscure little pictures to doing this yeah, huge, few, successful few, picture. Yeah, yeah. And after that, it was for a little while, it was kind of hit after hit. Yeah, so, to a certain extent, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, but a, a, certainly a very good career. Oh, a, a hundred, yeah, yeah, de- a definitely, very, um, yeah, yeah. A very... Uh, 
coveted career. Like you can see a lot of people being like, "Fucking goddamn it!" And then one of the, a nice story from um, Easy Riders Raging Bulls is that when all those guys were hanging out, they were all like, "Brian's gonna be the star. Yeah, Brian's yeah. gonna be the one that makes it." And that's people like George Lucas and Spielberg and all those guys because they yeah. went to film school together. Yeah, and they all thought that De Palma was the one who was gonna be the big bucks money winner, which is you know kind of funny. Yeah. Um, oh, it it just feels to me like De Palma is saying, "You want one of my thrillers." I'm going to give you one of my thrillers. You're going to have a dream <laughs> sequence within a dream sequence within a dream sequence long before Christopher Nolan decided to remake James Bond. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I just think this is a kind of, I don't know, it's just cool as fuck to me. I, I just think this is yeah. one of the, the coolest and certainly, you know, one of the, the best performances uh, of the 90s. Um, yeah, Lithgow's absolutely incredible in it. If you you forget, this is a thing. Like I've seen this film so many times, and there are scenes where he's talking to himself, and one of them goes off. And I'm like, right, okay, he's gone. Thank God for that. And you're like, oh no, hang on a minute, it's it's him. Am I right in saying there's n- they don't do any uh, crop shots? There's never actually a shot where there's two of him in the same. I, I, they always I, do it with body because it's exactly, the guy with yeah. the cop is his body double. In it. Exactly. Yeah. So so, so you get the backs of people, but yeah. you never get, never get them talking to each other. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, it's great. It's it's. I mean, you know, uh, and the fact that this was such a difficult edit, it's kind of miraculous that it works as well as it does. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, a cu- couple more points before we wrap up. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight Mac, the retired detective. Oh yeah, um, he's great. He's in it sort of briefly. Um, the guy who knows what he's talking about and has twenty years of experience. He is wearing a very De Palma coat. Uh, yeah. And they have kind of a similar build, and certainly, you know, De Palma in his later years. So I wonder if there is something in De Palma in that character, this kind of world-weary... Why look, won't people listen to look, me? I know what I'm talking about. I've done this for 20 years. And you touched on it earlier, but that scene with the flashback, uh, the unforgettable face... Um, oh, my goodness. Again, there's so much of this film, and I'll, you know, I'll touch on this in recommendations, but there's quite a lot of this film that feels like a Tales from the Crypt episode. It's, yeah, I it's, can it's, kind of see that. It's mainly in the Jenny stuff. This guy was in a Tales from the Crypt episode. Was it the... the uh, never mind. Never mind. Don't worry about it. I, I spoke to Dan about this yeah, off no, mic and, and he's, he's telling me something <laughs> that I talked to him about earlier. Well, you mentioned which is the very series, interesting. but then we didn't go No, and then I mentioned that that was the... Anyway, good, good, moving on. Right then. <laughs> uh, do you have any final points? Maybe Although actually, we... remind me when you, we do come back round to that, that there's something you've said separately that you might already be about to make a connection between, but that I want to... You, you have to hold this in your brain, yeah, Palace. I can't do that. My brain is a sieve at the moment. Do you want to talk about the tracking shot? Uh, what is it, four and a half minutes? Just under, yeah. Just under, with, uh, with a 45, uh, three 45 degree tilts. It's just, it's a magic trick. It's a miracle. It is. I would say that of De Palma's super showboaty long tracking shot, it's one that maybe pulls me out of the film a little bit more than some of the others. Because it's so I mean, it's so spectacular that I find myself going, oh, fucking hell, look at this, rather than necessarily going along with the characters. And he's, to some extent, he's using that to get you over what is quite an expository dialogue, heavy scene. Of course. So uh, what's, what's, what's the worst scene in Psycho? What's the worst scene in Psycho? Yeah, what's the, the one bit that, like, everyone... 
criticises. Right, I'm not going to turn this into a quiz. I'm just going to say. Yeah, just say. Uh, it's the exposition. Um, oh, right, okay. Yeah, so uh, what he's done here is it's almost like the, the Terminator rule of um, if you're going to have to have exposition, then make sure something is going on to keep people interested. The Pope in the pool rule. Uh, it, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it took a day to rehearse. It took yeah. a day to film. They shot it on a separate day. For, for four minutes. You know, and uh, Frankenstein's creature took a week to rehearse, but, um, <laughs> but that was that was a ninety-minute take. <laughs> <laughs> How many forty-five-degree tilts do you put in? <laughs> Look, there's some zooms in there. Why won't anyone <laughs> recognise the fucking zooms? <laughs> They're so important. Anyway, good and. Uh, oh. No I'll, spoilers. I'll hard wager that four-minute shot shot on a single prime rather than on a zoom. Uh, so he doesn't have any zoom, so you've, you've won. Yes. Better I, than De Palma. I, fi- oh, right. <laughs> De Paul quote now. Well, your DVD jacket oh, yes. quote. Better than De Palma. <laughs> and uh, if it gets released on Arrow, we can put that on the front of the, uh, the Arrow box. Uh, <laughs> so, best ending since Blowout. No spoilers. Oh, it's, it's an amazing ending. It's absolutely great. And a, a moment of inspiration. It wasn't there in the script. And you know, he came set one day and said, "I finally know how to end this film." This, without doing any spoilers, uh, I think we touched on this when we were talking about uh, Blowout. It's interesting to see the the different directors who have been inspired by Hitchcock and then gone off and do their own version of Hitchcock. Mm. There's a very similar moment to the end of this shot, to the last shot of Raising Cain in an Argento film. And obviously Argento mm-hmm. borrows heavily from Hitchcock as well, or is inspired heavily by Hitchcock. Very much so. Um, something he denied until that atrocious TV movie. <laughs> 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 but um, yeah, so it's it's interesting to see them both both do that shot. And yeah. it's so effective in both films as well. Yeah. Uh, it, and again, it, it, yeah, it does feel a bit like a magic trick. It, it, I'd say it feels more like a magic trick. So, so like, I on, oh, God, the, I want to talk about it so fucking much. Right. To talk around it, on the way up, it feels more like a magic trick. Yeah, because it's say? like, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, and how did they do that? Whereas the one in Argento, uh, I'm not going to say which film. If you've seen it, you know. <laughs> you have to have seen both films and then it'll be very obvious. It felt more like the kind of magic trick that's there in uh, Deep Red mm. because you, the, when you rewatch it, there's a tell yeah, yeah, as yeah. to what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And that is beautiful in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're both amazing. Am- amazing ends of film. So, recommendations based on this film, Dan. Would you like to go first or shall I? Uh, I can go first. I'm happy to. Uh, my first recommendation is uh, another... Weird thriller with one actor playing multiple roles, uh, although there are some pretty solid differences. Uh, It's from 1988. It's Dead Ringers by David Cronenberg. It's another slightly uncomfortable, very tense, weird thriller. I don't really want to say much more about it. If you've seen it, you know exactly why it's so good. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. That's great. Yeah, Uh, an excellent recommendation, Dan, I can tell. That you'd planned that for a long time. I squealed with delight in in Prague when I randomly came across a museum showing a load of old Cronenberg props, and they had all the the custom made obstetric medical oh, gear oh, yeah. from uh, from Dead Ringers, and then they also had a, a prop made by Gordon Smith who did the effects for it. They also had a um, a puppet that he'd made that was from a deleted scene that I've I've never seen the scene. Uh, from Dead Ringers, where Jeremy Irons has a parasitic twin growing out of his body, mm. and they had this like rather tatty now uh, cable-controlled animatronic 
miniature Jeremy Irons growing out of a, a puppet Jeremy Irons. And it was truly a delight. That's great. It's a very weird film. I almost recommended, just recommended Basket Case, but <laughs> off the back of that anecdote rather than the film we watched. So oh, that's, yeah. that's not actually how this works, is it? But um, yeah. my, yeah, first, my first recommendation uh, based on Raising Cain is The Dark Half from 1993. Lovely. I went to see this at the cinema. That's how ancient I am. Um, <laughs> and the reason I went to see it at the cinema is because it looked like Raising Cane from the trailers. Um, it's not as good, but still good. Um, it's uh, George Romero uh, adapting a Stephen King book. And, and also, I think one of the things that appealed to me about it was the poster uh, made Timothy Hutton look like Bruce Campbell. <laughs> um, so I thought, oh, he might be in it as well. It's the poster, the one where his face is like half in shadow, and then there's all the all the starlings in the background. Yeah, sort of. Tree. Yeah, it is tree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of it's kind of purpley and um and. Yeah, and I should rewatch that. I like that film. Yeah, it's great, and um, it's it's kind of it's kind of like the relationship between Kane and, and Carter. Like, yeah, I can see that. Strip out everything else. Well, and there was there's a bit in it, right? That I deeply remember um from when i saw it at the cinema where <laughs> where um a, a tad uh well i think it's bad tad but anyway um he's got his leg on a table and he kind of hooks a bottle of jack daniels off the table and into his and hand and like this one sort of flowing movement and uh yeah i shattered, well, it, it, i shattered a couple of bottles in, trying to replicate in that in both of those in films my in both both raising cane and dark half someone has gone well, I mean, obviously the bad one's cooler. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, much, much cooler. The good ones are nerd and the bad one's cooler. I mean, that's how life works, isn't it, Dan? That's how this podcast works, and you can decide which of us is cooler, dear there's a, um There's a scene... Well, the scene is in the movie, but there's a, a death in the book that isn't in the movie of Dark Half. And I remember as a teenager being so annoyed that Romero, who I definitely trusted as someone who would deliver on the yeah, gore, yeah. had missed out this kill. Yes. Looking back on it, I completely see why they didn't. Yeah, I mean... Although we borrowed... I I, um, I suggested it for um, Prevenge, and so it made it onto the screen in Prevenge, although not in as much detail as Stephen King wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, when, when is that it? That was more about reusing props for budget. <laughs> but yeah, and I, I seem to remember, yeah, Michael Rooker playing like a good guy. Um, yeah, that's not that common, is which it? Which isn't very common uh, at all. And uh, yeah, I, it's one that I actually really hope Arrow release at some point. Uh, they do have an in with uh, Romero. I'm not sure if that's a, a trickier get because I think it was a was it? Um, studio. Can't remember who. Anyway, Dan, what is your next and final recommendation based on this film? Uh, it's from 2003. Uh, it's directed by James Mangold. Identity. I, oh, you slipped that one in at the last minute. I nice. really like Identity. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of... Uh, obviously, James Mangold now, probably best known for Logan. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, a really interesting sort of Tempest knockoff with some interesting similarities to Raising Cain. It's a really fun film. It's quite. A, it was quite a like a, a sort of st like mainstream studio thriller. Yeah. Boasting the largest rain rig ever used on a film production. Interestingly, I don't know why really? that stuck with me, that piece of information. Yeah, well, the whole thing's studio shot. So it's set in a motel, but it's a build, that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, and it's raining, because it's The Tempest. It's raining really hard all the way through the movie. And that's a, oh, a 
fucking giant rain rig that they just had mm. going for the entire thing. Yeah, it's a bunch of people stuck uh, during a storm at a roadside motel, and they're being offed one by one. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's a it's a surprisingly effective. Like when you go as mainstream as that, you often find that thrillers are a bit like muted. Mm. Uh, and I remember really, really enjoying it the first time. I've seen it a couple of times since. I really yeah. liked it. Yeah, it's it's good, great film. Right, uh, my final recommendation is not a film. Though I could have done Split, maybe. Yeah. We discussed this before the podcast. I do think that there are uh, heavy influences on James McAvoy's performance from John yeah, Lithgow. Yeah, I can see that. Um, especially Mar- the Margot character. And I could have gone Carlito's Way because it's one of my all-time favourite Palmer's Daniel. I'm very sorry, Sam. That's all right. It's I, fine. It's I fine. could have gone My Brother's <laughs> Keeper from 1995, which features Lithgow playing twin brothers. Uh, in a Hallmark movie about AIDS, um, though it is not as well done as this film. This is beginning to feel a bit end of the special. <laughs> there, are a lot of, there are a lot of... I mean, the day, Daniel, you <laughs> criticise me for talking too much. Not talking too much, just saying, mentioning too many films Look, under the auspice of mentioning one film. It's we've, fine. We've it's got fine. To, I'll maybe, I'll, maybe I'll sneak in a bonus recommendation in the next uh, section. But, but here's my point. Here's what I'm coming to. I'm not about to recommend another film. I'm about to recommend a TV episode. Okay, well, I won't recommend um, another film. From Tales from the Crypt. Uh, it's uh, You Murderer, which is the first-person perspective one in which uh, you are essentially Humphrey Bogart. Um, it's someone's had plastic surgery to look like Humphrey Bogart, and uh, it's gone. It's got John Lithgow in it uh, as whom I will not say, uh, and I won't say too much more about it. But it is fucking bonkers. It's you know, Tales from the Crypt wasn't subtle at the best of times, <laughs> but this one kind of felt like it was sort of. I don't know, there's something really weird about casting Humphrey Bogart against his will from the grave um, in, you know, a fairly trashy uh, 22 minutes of TV. But you should still watch it in a double bill with Raising Cane because it's quite a good, you know, yeah. it's a good way of finishing off the, the evening. And some of the, the editing and the music is uh, very Tales from the Crypt in Raising Cane. And in fact, that scene with the face that's so memorable to both of us I really feel like that scene is like the first few minutes of a Tales from the Crypt episode where, um, you know, someone comes back from beyond the grave to take revenge. There are elements of Raising Cain that are very Tales from the Crypt. And that's all I wanted to say, Dan, for the <laughs> love of God. Do you want did to do... Did Palmer ever do an episode of... Because uh, they got some pretty big names in the early they, seasons, didn't they? They did, but no one, no one as big, no big as De Palmer. As De Palmer no. I don't know, maybe I thought he'd like to do a redo a Hitchcock Presents or something. Yeah, I mean, oh God. is it? Because they did, didn't they? They did The Man from the South. Is as it, an episode. They did, yeah. Is it too late to get him to uh, to do his own series, Brian De Palma Presents? Oh, yeah, imagine. And they're all split screen. I'm sure he'd fucking love that. Oh, let's organise it. If any of you out there are friends with Brian... <laughs> yes. Or just, or just happen to have come across some keys to his house, just leave him some notes. <laughs> just, yeah, every day, every hour. <laughs> right, past couple of weeks, Dan, what have you got? I watched a 1991 Latvian psychosexual horror for, by Vasily Mass. It's out on Blu-ray from uh, Mondo Macabro in the States. It is, uh, it's called Spider, although the original title is The Necklace. Uh, it's sort of 80% Valerie in Her Week of Wonders, like 10% Blind Beast, 5% Labette. There's another 5% in there. That's freestyle. 
Um, <laughs> uh, it's uh, like sort of very recently post Soviet Latvia. Hadn't really done any horror movies before. I was expecting it to be a lot more like amateurish when I watched it, which is very unfair. It's not. It's really gorgeous. Um, there's an enormous amount of like shooting through silks, and it's very very dreamy. Um, it's very very weird. Basically, uh, an artist is being wooed by a priest to do a mural for him. The artist has no interest in working for the priest, but luckily for the priest, uh, not for the third character I'm about to mention, the artist is a gross perv and um, and says he'll do it only if he can choose the the girl from the congregation to pose as the um, as the Virgin Mary for his painting. And after a visit to his studio where she meets a, uh, an Orson Welles lookalike posing for a painting with a, a topless lady, um, she starts having weird dreams about a sexual relationship with an enormous spider. And she, yeah, she starts to modify her life to prevent these dreams from reoccurring. It's a very weird film. It's really good. It does but sound good. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially a sexual awakening film, very similar to Valerie in Her Week of Wonders, but right. it's really, really worth Meet watching. Meet Possession. Yeah, there's a bit of Possession in there. Um, I'd say like it feels more about like every now and then they've got like a Walkman or like a modern telephone but the rest of it looks like it could have been shot in like it looks like it's set in like the 1800s there's a bit where she's like oh I'm just gonna go to my I'll get away I'll go to my aunt's house over on this island and then it cuts to the house and it's the biggest fucking mansion you've ever seen in your life just these beautiful like sort of candlelit corridors yeah they're all running around with oil lamps and all that kind of stuff it feels like a period film except it's not it's just like on the because it's on the cusp of the soviet thing they're not getting a lot of the western inventions in so they're you know quite pleased with the walkman this leads quite nicely into my uh, first recommendation Ooh. based on the past couple of weeks which is a documentary called film worker have you watched film worker no, yet? i haven't so um, it is about uh, Leon Vitali, uh, who you may know from uh, Barry Lyndon. Uh, yeah. And, and basically, uh, it's a documentary about Kubrick from the perspective of Vitali, who was first uh, an actor for Kubrick, but then uh, basically was, I think, attracted by his charisma or, you know... <laughs> The, the fact that you know you work with a genius and and you don't want to stop working with a genius so he ended up becoming Kubrick's kind of half assistant half kind of 24 hour a day <laughs> slave yeah. but in the nicest possible way and it's a very kind of very fascinating you get a completely different view on Kubrick from it um but but also Vitali himself is a really really interesting guy and you know it, he made a lot of sacrifices um, for cinema, basically, you know, both in terms of, I think, his health, but also, you know, his family life. You know, Kubrick was his priority. And, yeah, it's just a really fascinating look at a genius from a different angle. Um, the documentary itself, you know, the the some of it's a bit, I don't know, the, the, the editing could be better and, and the actual filmmaking craft of the documentary isn't that impressive, but what they get is kind of incredible in terms of anecdotes and insight. So um, if you have any interest in uh, in Stanley Kubrick or indeed Leon Vitale, 
and there's there's so many sort of behind the scenes like footage and really great stories about the making of The Shining. You know, that's a really great section. So yeah, if, if you have any interest in any of those things, then I recommend Film Worker. Dan. Thank you. Yeah, it's been You're welcome. For a while. It was, that was at London Film Festival, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. My second one is by Christo Papik. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, so I apologise if we've got any Yugoslavian listeners. I think we do. It, we saw our, our demographic map, our, didn't our we? Map, yes. That was very fun. Uh, it's from 1976. Um, it's another Soviet-era slice of weirdness. It's called The Rat Saviour. Oh, I know. Well, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful yeah. film. I've not seen it before. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, absolutely wonderful. Did you know it was remade in 2003? I did not know that. I've not seen the remake. Would you like to watch the remake with me? Uh, I do and I don't. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I feel the same way, but I'm going to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the same way that one day I'll get around to watching the live action remake of uh, Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> like, do you remember when we watched... Curiosity. Do you remember when we watched the V remake? Oh, yeah, that was awful. Yeah, I, I that worry that Rat Saviour would be something similar. But... It's, um, I think... The, the original, original is amazing. I think the original director was involved. Oh, OK. And I think it has his blessing. OK. But yeah, Rat Saviour's great. It's, um, it's uh, about a philosopher who loses his job, loses his apartment, uh, has the books he's trying to sell to make a little bit of money stolen, has briefly met a girl he likes but has lost contact with her, and while sleeping rough is told by a friend who he meets who is now working as a security guard that for a couple of nights only, while he gets himself together, he can bed down in one of the buildings that is on the route that the security guard kind of looks after, which is uh, an old bank that's been closed down by the Soviets. And uh, he gets in through the sewers. Uh, and once in there, he stumbles across a secret society having a, a banquet meeting, um, the sort of height of hedonism and luxury uh, going on in, this, uh, in the shell of a bank uh, while everyone else is sort of starving around them. And it turns out that this is a, uh, a type of rat that has developed the ability to shapeshift or to appear as human and he doesn't manage to get away to tell people without accidentally alerting them to his attention. So he's now he's in the crosshairs of this secret society of rat humans who are going to try and... who They talk a lot at the first meeting about how they're able to make people disappear that, don't, that aren't helping their cause. It's Yeah, it's a fantastic um, slice of weird social commentary dressed up as fantasy. It's amazing. And my recommendation, based on Dan's recommendation, <laughs> is The Cremator. Um, oh, Cremator's amazing. Watching a double yeah. bill. Um, I very... saw Cremator for the first time about a week before I saw Rats. Oh, wow. Well, okay. Yeah. Crazy, really yeah. Um, yeah, totally very similar. Right, uh, my final recommendation, based on the past couple of weeks, was actually kind of inspired by my film worker watch, which features uh, a, a very old uh, Ryan O'Neill. Uh, now, obviously, if you know much about Ryan O'Neill's real life, he is probably not the most pleasant individual in the world, partly because of his relationship with his daughter, Tatum O'Neill. But the film I'm going to recommend features them both, and they are both fucking astonishing in it. The film is Paper Moon. I've seen it before. But watching Film Worker made me crave watching it again. Have you seen Paper Moon, Dan? I don't think I have. It is a fucking masterpiece. Um, it's uh, Peter Bogdanovich, obviously. Yeah. It, it's black and white. Um, and, you know, it's, it's basically uh, a Depression-era movie about a con man 
who kind of realises that he can team up with a little girl in order to uh, make his con sort of go a bit smoother. And in fact, she's the one that convinces him um, that, that she can be useful. I have... I haven't seen it. My brain is tired enough that when you asked me, I was trying to remember if I'd seen Biggest Lunas's Tit in the Moon. So, Well, there you go. <laughs> um, very different films. <laughs> but yeah, um, Paper Moon, man, like, if you just want to feel happy, put on this film, even if you've seen it before, you know, it's time to rewatch it. It's just such a joy from start to finish. It's, yeah, just a beautiful movie. The performance, the best child performance I've ever seen you know, better than Daphne Keane in Logan, like, you know, Tatum O'Neill is just, you know, an absolute star in this film. Did it recently get a new Blu-ray? Did I see that? Not recently, but there is, I've got the Eureka Blu-ray, so that's that's, that's what I watched it on, and it is a really good disc, there's there's really great extras on it, Um, so yeah, if you've never seen it, definitely buy it, I think it's, you know, it's under a tenner, so... um, Right, that is it. From, no, I've got a bonus recommendation. Oh, Christ. Bonus recommendation. Now, the thing is, those of After you who complaining to, earlier. I said I was going to, and it's not a film, so it's fine. <laughs> um, this actually, because we're recording these out of sequence, uh, and because this will have gone up after the Arrow Video Fright Fest Live, Arrow Video Podcast Live. Hang on a minute. Some of you will... The festival uh, is live, like that's... That's built into Our the premise. Video, of Fright Fest live <laughs> record of the live podcast that will then be played not live in a recorded format for the people that can't be there. Is it too late to change the title to that? No, yes, it is. Fine. Because I've, we're in I've September. Got, I've got the world's longest business card. It's like <laughs> it's like an eight-inch business card. Uh, so with that written on it. Um, well, so okay. So the thing is, in our in our lives, in our real lives, uh, Sam. Uh, and I, I alluded to something, or my, actually, more more importantly, my wife alluded to something on Twitter, and Sam asked me what she had talked about, and I couldn't say it because it was oh. a secret. So the audience, the the people will know because we're going to be yeah, you, you've announced first. it, oh. but we haven't announced it yet. So in the in I'm now time, first. we haven't announced it. So you're getting it now. Yes, but this was you, all worth but it. But you're embargoed until Friday. For, well, for like a, like eight more days, actually, technically, um, because then it's going to be announced proper. This annoys but. Dan does this to me frequently and annoys me every time as if I'm the type of moron no, that know. wouldn't listen to you I saying would. that have... wouldn't listen to you saying <laughs> we're announcing this at Fright yeah. Fest. Do you need to tell me the rest where so Sam, it's under embargo, so please don't go and tweet it. And I want to hear what it is first before I decide whether or not I would tweet about it. <laughs> well you can't tweet about it, Sam. We've discussed I don't want this. to. Go on, what is it? I don't, don't be offended. I'd rather say something unnecessarily than wish I'd said something I didn't. So, yeah. So, it's something that Jen and I had separately thought about for years and and then had sort of talked about occasionally, casually for a while. But it was... Jen, Jen is the real driving force behind this. I'm sort of helping her. But uh, we are, this Halloween for a month, we are going to be running a uh, an event that is halfway between immersive theatre and a haunted house. Wow. So in Bermondsey at the Biscuit Factory, uh, we will be running for four or five weeks um, Fright Night Club, which uh, will have all its uh, the, the social media's up already. And obviously for those other people, it will be um, it will have been announced, but that's at Fright Night Club. Um, and we're going to get some some promotional material done for Fright Fest, so people will know about it. But, I, but you now know. Will it be live? Fright, fright 
nightclub live, live. fright live night live club but that just made it too long for the handle because <laughs> it counts all the characters when you're at so we had to shorten it down cool to man that sounds club. fun yeah so no no real more details yet but they'll be eking out over the excellent over the time excellent that's very exciting but now you do your twitter now I do my Twitter. Right, yes. So I am available uh, for all your social media needs. Mm-hmm. Um, at Sam Ashurst, uh, S-A-M-A-S-H-U-R-S-T. I'm also on Instagram. Um, I- I'm starting to put together the next thing, but don't worry, I'm not going to talk about it on the podcast for ages. But um, who knows, if I can't help myself, something might go onto Instagram involving that. Um, after I shoot some test stuff. Nice. Um, we'll see. But, uh, yeah, follow me on Instagram for that kind of business. And do do What's that. What's your Instagram handle? Because it's different. I think I didn't I do that. No, okay. you didn't say it. At Sam Ashurst with 23 at the end. But, yeah, do do that sooner rather than later because I'm fully, fully planning on Kubricking at some point and just deleting everything and vanishing. Watching Film Worker just made me want to stay in a house <laughs> and never talk to anyone apart from my immediate crew and family in that order. So nice. um, one day, <laughs> one glorious day, I'm going to delete everything. But until then, follow me for nonsense. Right. Nice. Oh, uh, shit. Yeah. Extra features. Oh, go on. Oh, let me do my Twitter. No, no, extra features. Do I do my Twitter after extra features? Yes, extra Don't, features. Okay, yeah, that's fair. And enough. you've already done your Twitter. I've at done... FrightNight.club live. Thanks. <laughs> at Frightnight's Club. Yeah, I'll do my personal one after extra features. What have you got for extra, extra features? features? What have you got? Oh, extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. So what we're going to do on extra features this week is something slightly different. So basically, in Cannes, I interviewed the director of Mandy, Panos Cosmatos, and we talked at length about a lot of very interesting things around the film, and you're going to hear some of them now, if the PR lets me. Uh, But because we're recording this so far in advance, still not sure what the release date's going to be for that film, so it might have to go here, it might not. If it does, here it is. So, uh, yes, as you're aware, I loved the film. The only other film that had an impact on me like that was Inland Empire, yeah. um, where I basically came up with it and I felt like my perception of reality had shifted, um, where there's an element of hypnotism yeah. in Inland Empire and I feel that it's there in Mandy yeah. as well. Thank was you. that deliberate? Is that something that you... Yeah, I definitely look at these as this and Black Rainbow as what I would call fast films. Yeah. Where, Absolutely, yeah. And that's part of you know something that I was trying to explore and getting back to my childhood imagination is that these films can create can, can put you in a, in, a, in a completely different state of perception yeah. I know a film is like that when I come out of it and the whole world looks like a reflection of the world of the movie in a way you know yes which is rare but it happens it's, it's so rare like, like I say last time was in Land Empire and that was what 2006 2007 and so yeah. it's, I've waited for this film for a decade <laughs> it's funny I mean I, I don't feel like I was directly influenced by Inland Empire but Right around the time I started writing Black Rainbow, I got—I don't smoke weed anymore because I just get anxiety from it. But, but every once in a while, I will do it just almost as a—I'll force myself to do it just to try to like open my mind a bit. But uh, I remember I, I got very high and watched Inland Empire at home, and it felt—it was like a, a almost like a religious experience or something. It felt like. At the time, independent film was extremely stayed and kind of felt like it was dying to me. Right. That it was, it was a, it was a, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, 
stingy mm-hmm. with its love. <laughs> and that book, that, that movie felt like to me like David Lynch making a giant tome and being like throwing it down on the fucking table and being like, open your fucking eyes and your hearts and stop fucking blue balling everything. <laughs> 100%. And so um, in, in the production notes, um, it talks about how you embarked on a, a decade of um, yeah. self-destruction, which right. led to this movie. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, in 1997, my mother died, and yeah. uh, I was terrified. I, like, I didn't know how I was going to react. And at first, I felt... There was no reaction other than just sadness. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of just, I would describe it as a slow motion car crash, where I, I sort of slowly descended into a, into a sort of vortex of uh, self-loathing and binge drinking that uh, seemingly had no end. Mm-hmm. But after my father died, I went into therapy and started to actually deal with the death of my mother because I knew that, that my father's death was going to compound on top of that and that would just, it would destroy me. Mm-hmm. So once I was able to actually start processing the grief, I started to gain some clarity finally in my life and uh, realized that I, need, I, I had to make a film before I died. Mm-hmm. Um, or I would die in shame, you know, alone in this house. So... Uh, against every instinct in my body because I'm a very, you know, private uh, my homebody, my mm-hmm. nature I forced yeah. myself to, you know, go out there and then make Black Rambo uh, by whatever means necessary and, uh, yeah I, I, I literally had a moment of clarity sitting in my, in my uh, house where I was like I suddenly pictured myself in that house 15 years from then still not having made a film and it was so it was like a dark premonition (laughs) and it literally lit a fire under my ass uh, that I I couldn't ignore that's amazing and and so what kind of filmmaking experience had you had before Black Rainbow like had you made shorts and stuff like that yeah I used to make the odd uh, Super 8 film right I made a Super 8 film just after high school that I still am quite proud of that was like a, a science fiction, uh, kind of an expressionistic science fiction film about people being addicted to slugs that excreted a hallucinogenic uh, enzyme. Interesting. <laughs> okay, that's interesting for Mandy, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then I made a couple a couple other strange little things. Um, so will they end up on a, a home release at some point one day, do you think? Maybe, maybe. That would be cool. Yeah. I would love to see it. Did it? I don't know. If it did, it was great. We talked about all sorts of things that you will be interested in. But if it didn't go there, it will go there in the future. And I'm going to stop talking now. So, Dan, who is looking at me with, with the <laughs> keenness and the eagerness of someone who wants to give their Twitter address no, it was, to I was, I was, the world? I was trying to work out how to say, I will have enjoyed listening to that in the future. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's like for sure. The, the tenses up. It's, it's going yeah. up at some point. So like hopefully this episode, but who knows? Uh, follow me on Twitter at 13fingerfx. It's the same on Instagram. Uh, also... Oh, just rate the podcast do it Sam hates this Look, he's already he's oh he's gone he's left <laughs> he's back no yeah um, uh, it does matter I think I think it matters not in um, the great scheme of things I think in the grand scheme of things the, the more popular it is the more Arrow consider it a worthwhile marketing 
endeavour and the longer we get to do it. I mean, be... on a long enough timeline, none of this matters. So, well, yeah. You, know, you yeah, do what you want out we're there. barrelling towards the heat death of the universe. Exactly, and dear the, sweet listener. And the heat, and also the heat, heat death of Britain. <laughs> dear sweet listener, we will see you in heaven uh, where we'll get to watch cult movies all day long. Oh, and, how big um, will the screen be in heaven, oh, Sam? going to be ruddy massive. going to oh. be the size of God's iris. Uh, we'll all have to look him in the eye if we want to watch, um, I don't know, Phantom of the Paradise. It's going to make porn really uncomfortable. I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. Now, Locking eyes with Jesus. Now, right. <laughs> unlike a De Palma film, I feel like this episode has gotten worse as it's gone along. Uh, but thank you so much for listening to it. And we promise we'll be more professional next time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye.